cast foreheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this privilege, for this honor to gather together as family this morning. Thank you for your grace, your truth, your love. Thank you for the inspired canon of Scripture. Thank you for revealing to us that this is the very bread of life. That otherwise we'd be emaciated like the world. That we are continuously nourished by the word, washed over by the word, made clean so that we are rejuvenated even. And just partaking in this meal. What a wonderful blessing it is, Father. May we never become familiar with it. Rather, may we do as so many so far have, increasingly so, embrace it, partake in it, bolster it, encourage it, take it out to a world that's accelerating away from your Son. Father, we pray especially for those that can't be here with us this morning for a variety of reasons, whether it's illness or not, that they know our hearts are with them, that the Spirit's out to them, and we ask that somehow they receive the pearls contained in this message that you've ordained from eternity past for this day. We pray also for those that are still lost, that don't have your Son, that aren't in Christ, that don't have his peace, the peace that we've received in spades. We pray for their humility. and That includes tough love, Father, whatever it takes. And if we need to be those vessels to dole out said love, then so be it. We pray for our tenacity, and we thank you for the opportunity. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make a morning like this a beautiful morning to embrace, to cherish. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, when subjectivity becomes the culturally accepted norm, part five, on Thursday we begin class by reading chapter four, all of it in the book of Ephesians. Let's grab the focal point, go to Ephesians 4.14, Ephesians 4.14. This was the focal point. And I would encourage you to read Ephesians 4. Actually, I would encourage you to read Ephesians altogether. But Ephesians 4.14 was the crux, at least the part that pertains specifically to our mini-series here on when subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm. Ephesians 4.14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's right. All those things exist in this world. All those things exist in this world. Waves and 
winds of doctrine and trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. All those things exist. You're remiss if you think those things do not exist in this world that we live in. But, now here's the point that came up last Tuesday even, but speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And as we've pondered this, I think we all agree that sometimes speaking this way, you know, truth and love can be difficult. It just can be. It's not always easy to tell someone, hey, you know, you're a bit disoriented. But where you're at right now, it's probably not the best place to be, given what, we're, what we know to be true in Holy Scripture. That's what we might call tough love, but let's, let's have Scripture help us with this. Hold your thumb there. Go to 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. Sometimes speaking the truth in love, it's not always easy. It's often challenging. And I brought this up on Thursday. It's not your fault to, that, that something that you're saying is offensive to someone else because the other person is very likely the one that's disoriented. And it's their problem, not the problem of truth. You present the truth, you present scripture, and that's that. And if they take offense with you, they don't have a problem with you. They have a problem with the spirit, so says scripture, who's convicting them upon said truth that you just handed to them as a grace gift, by the way. They're in pain, they're suffering, it stings because they're the ones who are disoriented, not you. So, with that said, it's not always easy. Look at 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That's a very powerful verse. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Let me give you the Greek, it's a Delia, uh, for timidity. It refers to a cowardly, shameful fear caused by a weak, selfish character. In other words, if you're, not, if you're not willing to speak the truth in love, it means you're a coward. I hate to be so harsh, but that's what the word means. It means you're a coward. It means you're somehow bowing out. And it's shameful. It means you're weak. And don't take it so harsh. Don't take it as some personal assault from the pulpit. We're all weak. We're all shameful. We're all cowards from time to time. Let's just face it. So don't be emotional about this. Be factual. The reality is that's what timidity means. It refers to a cowardly, shameful fear caused by a weak, selfish character, sometimes translated fear even. In context, 2 Timothy 1.7 is the opposite of power, love, and discipline. Timidity is the opposite of these things, and that's what Paul's trying to convey. So I was thinking about that, um, power, love, and discipline, and, and just immediately I was thinking about these might be the three words that we could realistically use for, let's say, the greatest military soldiers in U.S. history. Just think about that. Power, love, and discipline. If you even look at a lot of the mantras that come out of military organizations, it's always hovering around power, love, and discipline. Given that we are soldiers for Christ, 
so says 2 Timothy 2.3, our aspirations ought to be these same three things then. Power, love, and discipline. In other words, if we focus on these things, if we conjoin with the power of the Spirit on these things, in other words, if we humbly submit, then we're not going to be timid. That's the point. And that's the encouragement that Paul's trying to give in uh, Timothy here. So again, given that we are soldiers for Christ, our aspirations ought to be these same three things, power, love, and discipline. Not that we can artificially produce such things in the absence of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. However, as is often the case in Holy Scripture, we are given the end goal through which the Holy Spirit shall work His unique power. More practically stated, when God made us new creatures, He didn't make a bunch of wimps or conscientious objectors. He didn't. He made us new. And He says, you have my power now. I've given you my spirit, the spirit of power. You have power now. So just like I said, conjoin, join with Him. Follow the convicting ministry of that same Spirit. And don't be timid, because God's not timid. Power, love, discipline. He made us soldiers for His Son's namesake. And He didn't make us wimps. That's the point. This is why I've been teaching so adamantly about our standing in this world and our absolute refusal to kowtow to the ideas being peddled in it. This is what this has all been about. Do not, you need to refuse, whatever that means practically in your life, you need to refuse the ideas that are being peddled, even by our own country. Again, look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And again, timidity refers to a cowardly, shameful fear caused by a weak, selfish character, sometimes translated fear even. And in context, it's the opposite of power, love, and discipline. Paul goes on to state the practical manifestations of this. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be timid. Power, love, discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of his, me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Holy means being set apart for God's purposes. There's no, there's no room for a timidity, in other words. We have a job. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard, that, or, excuse me, guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Therefore, look at this, verse 13, retain, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 
guard, another powerful word, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Retain it, guard it in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In many ways we are sentinels meant to retain and guard the gospel from attack. A sentinel stands guard, if you would. And that's what we're like when it comes to the gospel. We're like sentinels. We stand guard. We hold fast. We retain that which is true. We stand at the gateway to ultimate freedom on behalf of the gate himself, Jesus Christ, up here on the board. John 10.9 in the Amplified, I am the door. And he's talking about the gate. He's the gate. I am the door. Anyone who enters through me will be saved and will live forever and will go in and out freely and find pasture, spiritual security. So we stand as sentinels, if you would, on behalf of the gate. We retain that which we know to be true. We hold fast to it even with power, love, and discipline. That's our job. We're not supposed to, in other words, become weak. We're not supposed to be selfish and say, well, selfishly, I really don't want to contend with this person because I kind of like them. And if I stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this moment, they're not going to like me back. Well, who are you thinking about in that moment? Certainly not Jesus Christ. You're thinking about you. That's what it means to be weak and selfish. That's timidity. So you see, this is our job as sentinels watching over the gospel, preserving it. And we do it retaining, which means do not be worn down by the pressures of this world. We retain it even. We do it retaining our faith and love. Look at verse 13 again. It says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The greatest treasure we have to our name is really the gospel, isn't it? Of course it is. Of course it is. It's the very anchor of our faith. Back to the passage that instigated this, go to Ephesians 4.15. Ephesians 4.15, that was just to amplify that it's difficult sometimes. But we're not supposed to be timid. Verse 15, Ephesians 4, But speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Since we aren't called in a spirit of timidity, we need to speak the truth no matter what. So here was a principle from Thursday up here on the board. Love tells the truth. It may not be the most pleasant experience to tell the truth, but that's what love does. True love always tells the truth. God's not a liar, and God is love. Your strong language may be the greatest show of love some people have ever witnessed in their life. It's true. There's a lot of, and it seems to be increasingly in the, as the generations come up, a lot of um, completely enabled younger people. No one's ever actually spoken directly to them with strong language for fear of offending a child? I mean, you know how this is going, right? Nobody, you know, it's against the rules now to even spank a child. How dare you spank a child? I mean, that's the same thread. How dare you offend a child? Now it's the children have all the power, and everything's upturned. 
in the homes. But that's not love. That's cowardice. That's a parent being afraid to what? Disappoint their children? Not be liked by their children? Ask my kids how often they liked me. I don't even know what the, I don't, I, I have an ideas, but I know it's not even near 100%. It's probably pretty low at times. But parents aren't called to be friends with their kids. Parents aren't called to be liked by their kids. It never says that in the Bible, ever. Matter of fact, it says just the opposite. If, you, if they don't like you, a lot of times, chances are you're doing it right. Because they were born in the flesh, you see. And the flesh hates righteousness. And if you're doing a good job as a parent, guess what happens? They're not going to like you very much. Anyways. But that's love. Your strong language may be the greatest show of love some people have ever witnessed in their life. There are some kids out there that I swear, I'm not sure they've ever been disciplined. In their lives. And then the parents send them off to school and want people like my wife to fix them. And she's like, well, I'm supposed to be teaching like math and science here. When did I become a surrogate parent? When did that ever happen? And then you got people in, a, uh, in political stations saying, yeah, that's the way it should be. Anyways, but speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 4.15. Telling the truth is fundamental to true love. Where do you start? If you're going to lie to a kid, if you're going to lie to a, your neighbor, how are you going to... Uh, how, do you how can you say with a straight face that you love them? Do you, love do you lie to people that you love? Is this, this is true love? Of course not. God is love, and God's not a liar. So those things are antithetical. So let's synthesize again up here on the board. True love. Let's put it this way. Jesus is God. God is love. Jesus never lied. Telling the truth is fundamental to true love. True love cannot lie. You might just water it down that way. True love cannot lie. It might be a little more tender. doesn't mean you have to be a hacksaw in people's lives, right, and just tell everybody the brutal truth 100% of the time, and people are stumbling all over the place. I mean, you know, there's people like that, too. They sort of get a little kick out of it. That's not what's being said either. Jesus Christ was the lion in the lamb, right? So placement is important as well. When to push and when to, you know, receive, if you would. But nonetheless, true love cannot lie. This is why our current mini-series is titled When Subjectivity Becomes the Cultural Norm. Why? Because subjectivity is based on lies. There's no stability even in subjectivity because it's wrought with emotionalism. So how could it be true? It's not. The world we live in is absent of God's love. Only the saved possess it. Which is why the world, less the believers, is essentially a giant prison cell. Because there's no love. There's no real love. It's just people putting other people more and more in bondage. And then saying and using the word like a liar does, love. I love you so much, I'm not going to discipline you. I love you so much, I'm not going to whack you in the bottom. 
I love you so much, I'm, not going, I'm just going to keep enabling you. That's how much I love you. I love you so much, I'm just going to enable you the rest of your life. That's not love at all. That's selfishness on behalf of the giver. And this is, the, this is the sad part. Without true love, freedom suffers. You want to put somebody in a bondage, seriously, for the rest of their life? Enable them. Go ahead. You want to say, you might as well have a big neon sign that says, this way, prison this way. And then you, you, you scribble over the top of it. I love you. No. You're, you're contributing to the delinquency of someone. And ultimately, just for, to be fair, ultimately it's that person's decision. So, you know, none of us take another person and throw them into prison. That person has to make all these decisions. But nonetheless, we shouldn't be encouraging them that way, right? Right. Without true love, freedom suffers. Societal norms. So we have a whole society that's doing this thing. Go this way. Societal norms have gotten so ungodly, unloving is fair to say, too, that it's intolerable if we even question factual errors. Um, the sign's pointing in the wrong direction. Oh, shut up, or else we'll put you out. But, but shut up. You're a hater. <laughs> what? It says, I love you, right on the sign. So you're saying, go that way, done, you're a hater, because hate's that way. You saw my blog, you saw, you know, I do write a blog. Um... Two signs, hate, love, remember? That's what's going on. We're called haters for saying, ah, the, the signs turn in the wrong direction. That goes towards bondage. This one's freedom. I don't care if you scribbled I love you on the top of it. It's a lie. That's not love. Societal norms have gotten so ungodly and unloving that it's intolerable if we even question factual errors. We are called haters or intolerant for loving like Jesus. It's incredible. In the end, it's freedom that suffers, especially in the souls of the lost. And as I've taught in the past, true love loves the sinner but hates the sin. You don't have to accommodate uh, sin in a person to love them. In fact, if you truly love them, you don't accommodate that sin. You say, well, that's a sin. If you're asking me, that's, that's a sin. What you're doing is against the Word of God. I love you, but I hate that thing you're doing. On Thursday, I gave you an example of my being attacked for saying that children are born in sin and a couple of, let's call them concerned mothers who claim to be Christians nonetheless, told me I was wrong. I, you know, I was like, this is ridiculous. So-called Christians telling me that children aren't born in sin. Well, that's a lie. So I responded objectively with Scripture, to which one never responded again. And the other changed the subject. Here's why. Because objectivity crushes Teshuka. Objective thinking isn't concerned about dominance. Teshuka, remember, your sin wants to rule you. Objective thinking isn't concerned about dominance. It simply orients to God's will and marches on. Sin's desire is to dominate godliness. But since it's not strong enough, it turns to subjectivity. In other words, all bets are off. I just want to win. That's what sin says. I don't need to be holy because I'm unholy, so says sin, right? I don't care if I abide by God's rules. If it's, if it's advantageous, 
Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Because even Satan tried to use Scripture to trip up Jesus, right? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But that's not the point. The end goal for me is to win. The end goal is to get, me, get you on your back so I can tear out your soft underside. That's the picture of Tashuka. You ever see a dog get dominated? That's what sin wants to do to you. It wants to dominate you so that you're the dog in the bottom when it's, you know, when it's like this. I submit. No. So here's the practical side of what we've been investigating in light of these lessons. And for whatever reason, the spirits put America on the chopping block. Or maybe more appropriately stated, it's citizens. Even good and evil has become subjective. We were talking about this before class, Todd and my mom and I. Good and evil has become subjective. Where does that leave you? When good and evil become subjective, it means there's, there's no real founding for it. There's no, there's no starting point. Where does that leave a society? It's horrible. Nobody knows what's going on. Everything's up in the air. That's why you look around. Everybody's anxious, right? Everybody's anxious. And I would say a state like uh, Massachusetts is leading the charge with ungodliness. So everybody up here is like even more anxious. If you go down south, it seems less so. Um, but you come up here, everybody's really anxious. And everybody's like racing around and like, you know, nobody's using blinkers anymore. Everybody, nobody does stop signs anymore. Just blasting through everywhere. And then if you like, you know, if you rightly pull out in front of them, then they're like, Pshaw! you know, as the birdie comes out, it's like, what's going on? It's because they're like frantic. Everybody's all over, right? Everybody's all over the place. It's kind of creepy out there right now. That's why. Because nobody, everybody's so anxious because nobody actually has a foundation anymore for even relating to what's good. And it's messed up. Anyways, for the true disciples of Christ, this presents a certain challenge. If even the authorities support subjectivity as the norm, which they are increasingly so, it undermines a disciple's ability even to evangelize. I mean, where do I start with somebody who says that this is good and that's evil and it's literally the opposite of me? It's a, it makes it difficult. The question came up in our lesson on that idea of authority, though, uh, and it has everything to do with the, a blog I wrote three times ago, three blogs ago. This is how judgment works. Why would God obtain or ordain bad authority? The answer is simple, as a judgment on man. And we use the account of King Saul in 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 22 as a perfect example. We want Saul. We want Saul. No, you don't. I'm the king. We want Saul. We want to be like everybody else. We want another king to fight for us. Are you serious? Are you serious? You got the king, the, the, the God of the universe fighting for you. And you want, you want a man? Because what? Because he's good looking? What are we doing here? But, you know, you know how the story goes. God, Isaiah 45, 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. God says, okay, I'll ordain it. And his, it's his sovereign right to ordain evil to exist and perpetuate, at least for a time, on this earth. So as we know, as the story goes with King Saul, we know that God gave them the king they desired. And you, might, you, could, you can relate right now. There might be some of you listening to my voice right now who said, 
yeah, you know what? I just, I just went through that. I ignored, I ignored God's grace. No, let me go back even further. I didn't even pray about it. I didn't even pray about it. I just said, I want this thing. I, I heard some static, but since I never prayed, I never actually fellowshiped with God appropriately on the topic under discussion. I never gave him any time to talk with me about said decision. I just blew through it all. I knew it was wrong, but I just blew through it all. I, I ignored all the warning signs. And then I ended up miserable. No kidding. I wonder how that works. I, that's how judgment works in real time. That's how it works. You want to ignore the grace of God in His blessings? Because that's that vein. Then you get the opposite. You get the curse. What do you expect from God? It's not like He lied to you. He told you if you go this way, you get the blessing. If you go this way, you get the curse. But I didn't know. He said right here at at the fork in the road, pray to me. Pray without ceasing. I'll let you know. So as the story goes with King Saul, we know that God gave them the king they desired, even though they were fairly warned. In fact, the Lord told Samuel that they were essentially rejecting the true king, the Lord, for a mere man. As a society, they demanded a king, so the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, said, okay, I'm paraphrasing, okay, but don't say I didn't warn you that departing from my grace results in cursing instead of blessing." Don't say I didn't warn you. So this is how judgment works. And this is the same pattern that we can all live by. This is how judgment works. God gives you grace, holds you accountable to it, and then it's your choice. That's free will. Up here on the board. When man refuses God's grace, it becomes the very basis for judgment. A perfect example is the cross. For example, if you are miserable, malcontent, lacking peace, etc., etc., it's because you've refused God's grace. John 14, 23 to 27. That's why. It's not because Pastor Ed's particularly on fire this morning, or onerous, or however you'd like to look at me. It's none of that stuff. Don't blame me. Don't blame the guy standing behind the pulpit doing his job. He's just giving you the truth. If you're miserable, it's because you refuse God's grace. After all is said and done, each one of you needs to decide for yourselves whether or not you will depart from God's grace or not. That's what this basically comes down to. What are you going to do then? Are you going to stay in keeping with His grace or are you going to depart from it? Are you going to be a uh, timid person, which translates a coward? Or are you going to be bound in power, love, and discipline like a good soldier. Where are you going to stand on all of this? So when all is said and done, each one of you needs to decide for yourselves whether or not you will depart from God's grace. The stark reality is, as Jesus stated, that our choice really boils down to whose judgment, even, we fear the most, given we choose one or the other up here on the board. Matthew 10, 28, we are talking about societal norms. We are talking about two different kinds of pressure, divine versus man-made. 
man-made being societal, divine meaning godly, from God. Jesus said it very simply. Who are you going to fear? Whose judgment are you afraid of? Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, there's no comparison. You're talking about the God of the universe versus what? The God at your work? Or the God that you call child? Or whatever that God is in your life? Whatever that idol happens to be in your life? Oh, that's right. We all have little gods, don't we? Little G's. Little idols. Like John said, children, God yourself from idols. Why would he say that? Because they're little gods. And who do you fear? The little god? In other words, if you choose to abandon objective godliness for the sake of subjective societal norms because you fear the judgment of your peers, etc., then you must gird your loins for the judgment of God. Those are your options. Or vice versa. Well, which one do you fear more? Do you fear God's judgment or man's judgment more? I would say that's a bad wager if I ever saw one. Agree? That's a really bad wager. So the overarching question is, are you willing to suffer the judgment of the world in favor of God's? Up here on the board, judgment by the world. The Lord was willing to suffer for telling the truth. Galatians 6, 9, 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, 2 Timothy. Are you willing to suffer this way? This is the most worthy kind of suffering for his name's sake. John 15, 20. Or are you going to be timid? Are you going to be a coward? Now, here's been the crux of our lessons in this series. Obviously, we're building to a crescendo here. When subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm, that's the title even of our messages. Societal norms can be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm, which has supplanted godliness. And here's the, here's the key statement the conclusion. Instability becomes the accepted norm. Now, this is difficult to explain. Uh, it, let, me, let me see if I can give you an analogy, because it's somewhat difficult to explain when you're saying that the, the norm is something that moves. It seems like an oxymoron almost, but it's not, if you think relatively speaking. Okay? I'm going to give you a little physics lesson this morning. Are you ready? Stuff I learned in Physics 3 in college. Now you can tell everybody you learned about uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be very, very, very uh, gentle. Imagine the universe is an infinite ocean of truth. Okay? So everything that we know is just this big ocean. Okay? The Lord is the creator and sovereign ruler over said universe. Okay, that makes sense. Somewhere within the vast expanses of the universe is a big old, now don't laugh, is a big old floating trampoline. You ever seen those like on the lakes? 
the kids are on, the, you know, they float. There's like a giant tire tube in the middle of the trampoline pot, and they'd like toying. Just imagine a huge one of those, and it's floating in the ocean somewhere, okay? Only in this case, the sides of the trampoline are enclosed with solid walls that no one on this floating trampoline can see through. So there's a whole populace or population inside the, the walls, a circular wall around this trampoline, and it's floating out to, in, in, on the ocean. But anybody that's inside that, all they see is what's inside that, and that's it. Okay? Maybe there's some trees painted on the walls. I don't know. So concentrate. For everyone living on this trampoline, the they're on the trampoline. So there's one. Okay. For everyone living on this trampoline, the only movement that is detected is that which is relative to the confines of the trampoline. Does that make sense? So if you're inside the trampoline, the only movement you ever perceive is within the confines. So people are moving around, right? Okay. In other words, if you walk towards someone at a rate of three miles per hour, and you ask them how fast they're approaching you, if they'd say three miles per hour. Is that fair? You're standing there and someone's walking at you three miles per hour. Okay. Your frames of reference are the same inside the confines of the trampoline walls. We might rightly say that the norms and standards of movement for those living on this trampoline are relative to that which is perceived within the confines of its walls. Is that fair? So all movement is relative to what you know to be true, to be stationary, which in your little world is that the base of the trampoline. Okay. Now, what if you're outside the confines of the trampoline, looking into it? What might you say about movement relative to you? In other words, what if you're on the island of God, which is stationary? And this trampoline, remember it's floating out on the ocean. This trampoline is drifting rapidly away from said island at, say, 20 miles an hour. If a person is walking across the trampoline at 3 miles per hour in the same direction that the trampoline is drifting, is it fair to say that from the island's perspective, that person is walking away from it at a speed of 23 miles per hour? Because the whole trampoline's moving at 20, and then a person on the trampoline is moving at 3, 20 plus 3. Is it fair to say from the island's perspective? But if you were inside the trampoline, it was only moving 3. Okay. So the answer is yes, of course. So here's my analogy. See, that wasn't so bad, right? Now you know relativity. The floating trampoline. Perspective is everything. Because everything is relative to what you think is light. If you think the trampoline is light, then movement is relative to the trampoline. Is that fair? Okay. If your world, quote unquote, is limited, your perception of movement is relegated to that world only. However, God abides in his real world. This ain't the real world. This ain't the real universe. This isn't the truth about life. This is like the trampoline 
So God abides by his real world where your movement is relative to him. So all the Spirit's trying to say to you is that this is precisely what's being taught from this pulpit up here on the board. While the world thinks it's stable in its ways, it's actually accelerating away from God, making it unstable. Because the only stability in that vast expanse is on the island. But this thing's all over the map. But the people in the trampoline don't know it. It cannot understand its own darkness because of its limited perspective. I could have just as easily talked about a real example with the planet Earth, which spins, by the way, at a rate of around 1,000 miles per hour. Just think about that. If you live on the equator, you're moving at 1,000 miles per hour. Um, someone living on the equator has no idea how fast they are spinning while they are sitting in their recliner, right? If I went up to a guy sitting in a recliner who lives on the, on the equator and, and said, how fast are you moving right now? He'd look at me like, what's wrong with you, man? He's like, I'm sitting in a recliner. How fast do you think I'm moving? Get out of the way. You're blocking my view. Right? But in reality, it depends on perspective. From the outside, if I'm in space, I'm watching that guy zing by at 1,000 miles per hour in his recliner. From their perspective, they think they aren't moving at all. Yet, from a bigger picture perspective, they are moving at 1,000 miles per hour. And... Even that's not a completely finished analysis. I don't want to get crazy with you. Because the Earth is actually rotating around the sun at a speed of around 67,000 miles per hour. 67,000 miles per hour! How fast is that guy going in his recliner? <laughs> right? Anyways, you get the point. Perspective is everything. That's the whole thing. That's what the Spirit's just trying to give us perspective. Back up a little bit. Let's back up, because we're all sitting on this trampoline. We think nothing's going on. Let's, let's elevate our thinking just a little. Let's, let's take a little divine viewpoint on this. Whoa. Whoa. Our society is racing away from God. But you see, if we abide, if we're friendly with the world, if we spend all our time on the trampoline, we don't know it. That's what these classes are for. That's what reading the Bible is for. Elevate your perspective, and you, then you start seeing everything clearly. And it's drastic. It's not, I'm not some paranoid pastor, some, you know, cave-dwelling, loopy, well, I'm a little bit, but you know what I mean? I'm not loopy. Honest to goodness, I'm just speaking the truth. He gives guys like me discernment, I guess, to step back and say, hey, you guys, do you guys see what I'm seeing here? You know, I never thought about it before, but now I do. That's what's going on in this world. Perspective is everything, and nobody has a greater perspective than God, whose very mind is captured in the Bible, so says 1 Corinthians 2.16. So we can either live on the trampoline or venture out towards God's island. Again, all of that was to amplify the last sentence in the following point up here on the board. When subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm. Do you understand now what subjectivity is? Subjectivity is living on the trampoline. That thing's everywhere. I guess it depends on where the tides take it. I don't know. But it's certainly not stationary. But if you're living in that society, in that little realm, everybody could be sitting in recliners and everybody's like, what's he talking about? 
but it's a moving target in all reality. Societal norms can be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Why? They don't have a perspective. They say, I, he's sitting down over there, he's sitting down there, and now you're trying to, oh, Mr. Pastor guy, trying to tell us we're all leaving God behind. What are you talking about? Well, you have to actually see things the way God sees them. Woe to the person who calls light darkness and darkness light. Sweet, bitter, and bitter, sweet. Woe to that person. Why? Because their perspective is so limited, they don't even realize what's going on. They're just following the game. Societal norms will be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm, which has supplanted godliness. So therefore, instability becomes the accepted norm. Being on the floating trampoline, bouncing everywhere, becomes the accepted norm. But from God's perspective, it's all over the place. And that's why you get confused. You understand? I'm speaking to those of you who knowingly, actively split your time between the island of God and the trampoline. That's why you're all confused. It's because you haven't committed. Oh, that C word. Commitment. Oh, I hate commitment. I don't even commit stuff in my own life. No kidding. It's It's the way you live. Nobody knows how to commit except to themselves anymore. So to those of you who are splitting your time between the island of God and the trampoline, well, then to you I say, you get what you deserve. Because I'm speaking to people right now that know better and still decide to vacation on the trampoline. Like for long periods of time. Or let me put it this way. Vacation on the trampoline um, in certain parts of their lives. I don't want to give that up yet. Well, then... You choose. You want God's grace? Or do you want to go this way? Do you want to go towards the blessing or do you want to go towards the curse? You want stability in your life or do you want instability in your life? Which one do you want? Choose wisely. God says choose life. So you may live, right? I mean, it seems obvious to me. I mean, instability becomes the accepted norm. On the flip side is where we find true stability, true perspective, up here on the board. With the word, we have all the facts we need. The more trained up in the word you become, the more stable your life becomes. This is due to the objective nature of truth in the soul. That's the most wonderful thing about learning the word of God. That once it's implanted, it bears awesome fruit. You get things like stability. You get things that are promised like peace. You get contentment. You lose anxiety. You cast all your anxieties on him because he what? He cares for you. That's what the word gives you. That's why you that's why I don't know what else to tell you, but read your Bibles, will you? Pray and read your Bibles. And then take in all the grace possible. Starting with this ministry. If you've been called to this ministry and you know you've been called to this ministry, then take the grace that comes from this ministry. All of it, not some of it, not when it's accommodating to you and your life and your time on God's island versus the trampoline. Well, I go on the trampoline um, on the weekends, so anything that happens on the weekends, I, can't, I just can't take it, you know what I'm saying? And then I get back to, and the ones on the island, i got to catch up, so I just can't get that lesson. You get it, right? And I say, no, I don't. 
Well, that's why I never talk to you. I know. Because people don't talk to me anymore. Because they know I'm going to tell them the truth to their face, and it's not going to be, I don't know, it's going to be tough love. It's not going to be timid. It's not going to be weak. It's going to be powerful with love and discipline. The more trained up in the word you become, the more stable your life becomes. This is due to the objective nature of truth. In the soul, we move from subjective living to objective living. Subjective people desire this, or excuse me, despise this, and in many ways are jealous. I don't want to get into that. You can chew on that in your own time. As an ex exercise in amplifying this point, we spent multiple lessons now using John chapter 9, the account of the blind man's. Uh, healing, ending up in expulsion from the synagogue. How that happened is ridiculous, but we see it around us. And frankly, it's been quite easy to see this man suffered the same way some of us do daily. How? He spoke of a miracle as a fact. That was what we saw. He spoke of a true miracle by the Messiah as a fact. Like we do about our salvation, right? I can't even believe it. Can you believe that you got saved? Let's stop this. Let's just pause. Can you believe that God saved you? <laughs> it's laughable, right? It's kind of funny. It's a miracle that you're saved. It really is. It's a miracle. Amen? All right, so we talk over. It's a miracle. I can't even believe it. You know me. People tell me that. Hey, I never knew. One of the This is a funny story. One of the so-called concerned mothers actually went so far back to my high school years because that's where we grew up. I never knew you to be a religious person back in high school. In other words, like, who are you? I've been religious since I was a child. And I just said, yeah, I was lost back then. Like, really lost. The miracle. And that's probably what they're saying. Well, there's a miracle. You got saved. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know. That's the point. Join in. Stop being an idiot. Your kid's a sinner. Anyway. So he spoke of a miracle as a fact, like we do about salvation. That's a point of relation, minimally. He refused to kowtow to social pressure to denounce said facts. They wanted him basically to denounce it. That's what they were asking after. And so they put him out, like we are in our own society, being called haters and such. So as a side note, I just wrote a blog about how, <laughs> how we are to deal with our enemies, titled A Love Letter to My Enemies. Please read it. Please read it. Enough said. Here's the point the Spirit's been using Holy Scripture to illuminate in our contemporary society up here on the board. Just because a certain idea has gained momentum in society doesn't mean it should now serve as the baseline for common judgment. Society is what's on the trampoline. I mean, just because someone takes a baby step and another baby step and, the ba and everybody's like, oh, he's just taking a baby step. Maybe it's zinging away from truth at 100 miles an hour. So that's not our, ba our baseline is not the base of the trampoline. Our baseline is the universe and where God sits. When subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm, societal norms can be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm, which has supplanted godliness. And then we came upon the practical 
manifestation of this even in our own society. So we drew ourselves out of chapter 9 of uh, the Gospel of John and said, well, what does this mean for us? If someone can speak the truth about the Lord, even his miracles, miracles in their own life, and then be put out, what is, how's this working out in our own lives? Well, there's these idiots called social justice warriors. In light of undeniable truth, these individuals depart wholly from objectivity, abiding in subjectivity as tyrannical haters of truth. Yet, oddly enough, they call their victims, us, often if we're standing for Christ, haters. Somehow we're the haters because we're standing up for truth. And you're the defenders, you're the so-called social warriors. Yeah, I'll add this for, for food for thought up here on the board. On societal norms, Satan's strategy is to get masses of agreement on something ungodly, then have it accepted as the norm and then use it as an undeniable, unquestionable tenet of human decency and governance. Let me say it again. Satan's strategy is to get masses of agreement on something ungodly, get as many people on the trampoline as possible, and then have it accepted as the norm. In other words, don't look outside, just look within our little societal thing, our little society. And then use it as an undeniable, unquestionable tenet of human decency and governance. And don't say but, because we'll throw you out. This, while genius and awfully effective, is garbage. So what does the Spirit want us to do with all of this? I guess we're rounding the turn on this series Challenging societal norms. Our challenge as God's children, if we consider ourselves not among the walking dead, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, is to step back and see when, where, and how social norms are perverse. Honestly. That's our challenge. Like, what's going on? We may not change it. We may not affect change. I don't know. Uh, I know there's controversy over you know, how much a Christian is to weigh in beyond just voting in a society like ours? Uh, should we become you know, activists? And that's not for me. That's between them and the Lord. Um, but minimally, we have to see it all as truth. That's Ephesians 5, right? So minimally, we have to at least engage, endeavor to see the truth. So our challenge as God's children, if we consider not ourselves among the walking dead, zombies, is to step back and see when, where, how social norms are perverse. Just call a spade a spade. That's all he's trying to say. Call a spade a spade. That's a good place to start. And then I'll call you differently. I mean, obviously, I have a pulpit, so I'm being called to, you know, take stabs at the world and, you know what I'm saying, shine light in a certain way from a pulpit. Well, not everybody here has a pulpit, obviously. You have your own ministries out there. Could be something you do at work. I don't know. Could be something you do in your own life. Um, I hear of people making you know, changes for God all the time in their lives because they didn't realize how perverse their own life was. The things they were reading, the things they were watching, the things they were listening to even. Just those fundamental three things were perverse, like totally. And they didn't, it didn't occur to them to the degree it's occurring to them now. So they've been basically hacking those things out of their lives. There are, there are multiple people that I'm thinking about right now that are doing, have done and are continuing to do just that. It's not an overnight process, but that's what's going on in their souls. And they're doing it for the right reasons, not legalistic reasons. It's because they want to. 
They want a closer relationship with God. They want to turn away from that garbage, the perversions. They want to call a spade a spade. So there's one last thing I want to get to. Everybody's favorite topic, um, being funny. Because he asked me to use a, um, a hot topic in our own society. Uh, abortion. Uh, here we go. Right? So abortion as an example. We all kind of know the tug of war that's been going on since, what, the 70s? I think it was 73 with Roe versus Wade, 73. Um, we all know what's going on. Um, so let's go back to this issue. And please, if you've been involved on either side of the fence on this situation, I'm not judging you. That's not for me. I'm not, this isn't about you feeling condemned because you've made mistakes in your past. That's not what this is about. This is about using something that we can all understand and then looking at what society's saying is good. Even celebrated, our last president celebrated Roe versus Wade versus what's godly. That's all this is meant to do. So, you know, keep the condemnation issues at bay. Challenging societal norms. How is it that a person who believes abortion is murder, as the Bible states, yet simultaneously leaves judgment in God's hands, is somehow a hater? In other words, if I knew you had an abortion, I'd say, well, it is what it is. Um, I'm not going to judge you. Well, I would if I were you, so I hate you. Oh, you're a hater. What? Wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. How'd this happen? I'm just telling you what is true in the Bible. You killed somebody. Okay. What do you want me to tell you? You want me to celebrate you for killing somebody? Is this what you want? Yes. No, I'm not going to do it. Well, you're a hater then. I'm not really a hater. I actually love you enough to tell you what's in the Bible. I'm not timid. So how is it that a person who believes abortion is murder, as the Bible states, yet simultaneously leaves judgment in God's hands, is somehow a hater? If anything, that person has a lot of love, enough to speak out against societal norms. While they vehemently disagree with the murderers, their focus is on the innocent children being killed. How is that hatred? How am I hating? I'm not. So here's another big question worth asking regarding the issue of abortion. When did two wrongs become a right? When did making a first mistake ever justify making a second? Such as jeopardizing the rights, example given, the life of an unborn child of another human being. So one mistake was already made. When did that turn into making another mistake as justified? Honest to goodness, when did that happen? Someone made a mistake, a sin. When did that justify another sin? That's the whole point. When did that ever happen? The so-called social justice warriors will argue that something as awful as rape, oh, here we go, makes it okay to kill a baby that is conceived as a result. They always use the, you know, the marginal cases. Oh, but what about rape? Were you raped? No. So you want to argue some marginal case to make the general case. Is that what you're saying? Because you just really want to be a selfish ass and kill a baby. This is what this is about? You're a hater. I'm not a hater. 
When did two wrongs become a right? That's the question. So they'll bring in these other corner cases, which is cool. It's cool. It's just a misdirection from the pit of hell, which is what Satan's really good at. Where in the Bible does it say we get to dismiss? You ready? Where in the Bible does it say we get to dismiss the life of a child just because an adult, the rapist, sinned? Where in the Bible does it say we get to dismiss the life of a child just because the rapist sinned? When did two wrongs become a right? Hmm. Remember this, and this will settle it all right now. God ordains every child conceived in the womb. God ordains every child conceived in the womb, including the one that was resulted as a, as a, from rape. So has our society forgotten this? I guess so. Because it's true. I was right, actually. It's 4,000 a day, I believe. A day! That's 4,000 murders a day that nobody gets actually convicted of. In fact, our last president celebrated. This president doesn't. This president is completely against it. Thank God. But our last president celebrated it as women's rights. I want to read an article I received from my daughter-in-law, Andrea, after Thursday night's lesson on this topic, because this abortion thing came up. Um, and this is from uh, LifeSiteNews.com, and it's corroborated by CBS and other news sources. It's not. I just never heard of it before. And before I read this to you, ask yourselves one question. Why haven't many of us heard about this before? I'm going to read an article. It's short. And it has everything to do with Roe versus Wade. But I want you to ask yourself, why haven't many of us, myself included, heard of this before? Okay, you ready? This was written in uh, January 22, 2016. Today is the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the U.S. Supreme Court case that legalized abortion on demand in the U.S. and led to the deaths of countless millions of unborn babies. And yet, though the pro-abortion media and President Obama are celebrating the day, almost nobody is talking about the true story behind Roe versus Wade. And no wonder why. It's terribly inconvenient for the pro-abortion cause. One woman, Norma McCorvey, knows the true story all too well. She told her story in brief in a powerful ad from 2013, quote, Most of you won't recognize me or my real name, she says in the ad. It's Norma McCorvey. I'm also known as Jane Roe. Yes, that Jane Roe. The young woman who was supposedly raped and who was supposedly seeking the illegal abortion that she petitioned the Supreme Court to let her have. The only problem? She wasn't raped. She was told to lie about that by the pro-abortion activists who used a confused and impressionable young woman to achieve their aims. Back in, quote, back in 1973, I was a very confused 21-year-old with one child and facing an unplanned pregnancy, she says. And even though the Supreme Court used her case to impose legal abortion on the entire country, McCorvey herself explains, quote, the truth be told, I have three daughters, and I have never had an abortion. 
Quote, upon knowing God, I realized that my case, which legalized abortion on demand, was the biggest mistake of my life. She says, quote, you see, abortion has eliminated 50 million innocent babies in the U.S. alone since 1973. Abortion scars an untold number of post-abortive mothers, fathers, and families, too. Quote, you read about me in history books, but now I'm dedicated to spreading the truth about preserving the dignity of all human life from natural conception to natural birth. The name of that article written on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade was Woman Behind Roe versus Wade Helping Legalize Abortion Was the Biggest Mistake of My Life. Now again, the question that begs to be answered, why haven't many of us heard about this before? Where are all the feminists? So this means, lo and behold, that Jane Roe was merely a pawn. That's a shocker. That's a real shocker. Simply put, the God of this world, the one who controls the media, doesn't want us to hear about such things. It's that simple. That's the first time I've ever heard about that. The God of this world doesn't want us to hear about those things. Doesn't want to hear about how abortion destroys mothers and fathers and families. Doesn't want to hear about the ripple effect. Only wants to protect the so-called mother's rights. Are you kidding me? When did two wrongs make a right? When did that become the societal norm? Honest to goodness. And I'm not, again, this is, abortion is just one of, you pick it. When did this happen? that we were able to legalize murder 50 million times over and over. When did this happen? I'll leave you with this. <clears throat> Stand firm, act like men. That's women, you too. We shouldn't tolerate hatred towards godliness. For example, act as if there's truth to it at all. There's no truth in that. We shouldn't tolerate any part of it. Love isn't weak, nor should it stand down in the face of animosity towards Christ. It's not hate to call someone a murderer if they murdered someone, whether it's an unborn child or an adult. That's not hate. That's just stating a fact. If the facts are offensive, guess what? Too bad. Too bad. Oh, all right, so, okay, if, um, I don't know, if David were here, or Moses, or Paul, Right? They're all standing here. And if I said to them, uh, you guys are kind of murderers, what would they say? Don't you? I, you're a hater. But you murdered somebody, right? You're a hater. Those are the facts, right? And what if all of a sudden the ugliness came out and he started character assassinating me? Right? What are we doing here? They would say, that's right, we are. It would be the same vein of thinking I had with that concerned mother about my teen years in high school. Man, I was kind of lost. That wasn't any good. Yeah, I murdered someone. Thank God for the cross. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God that God saves. Amen? 
Amen, right? What are we doing then? What are we preserving? People's feelings on the raft? What do we worry about? Offending people? When did that actually come in as godly? When Jesus Christ was the chief stumbling block. When did, when did offensiveness to ungodliness become a problem? Be something that we're supposed to kowtow down to? When did that, when did that happen? When we started to drift. When America started jumping in hordes in, onto the trampoline and drifting and away from God. So, we're, our job, I mean, whether you like it or not, our job really is to stand firm for truth. That's our job. Not to be timid. Not to be selfish. Not to be cowards. Some of you have family members that you need to go up to and say, listen, you are out of whack. You say you're a Christian, you have no fruit. None. You need to go look in the mirror. Are you actually in the faith or are you on the trampoline bouncing around? Oh, but I'm a Christian because see, it says right here on my shirt. You're such a rebel. You're such a, oh my God, oh, oh, I didn't realize, my bad. I didn't realize you had the shirt. My bad. I didn't realize you said that little prayer back in the, uh, when you were 10 or 5, when you, you could barely speak over your lollipop. I didn't realize, I didn't realize you said all these little things, and I didn't realize I was enabling you. Because I'm a selfish coward. But now you do. What are you going to do? Be a coward? What are you going to do? Mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, friend. What are you going to do? You're going to be a coward? You're going to be timid? Or are you going to stand up for truth? The one who saved you is telling you, hey, listen, I need you to stand up for the truth because nobody's doing it anymore. But, 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 no buts. No buts. Enough. Call a spade a spade, and that's the end of it. Do it in love, but don't you ever compromise. Don't you ever compromise my good name. Don't take that shirt off. <laughs> right? No, put it back on. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you understand the ferocity? Do you understand how offensive that is? Instead of being worried about how offensive Christ is to the world, shouldn't you be concerned about how offensive the world is to him? Who do you fear? Whose judgment do you fear? If a person wants to argue about, quote, mother's rights, let's say, then by all means do so. But do not, under any circumstances, suppose that context switching is tolerable in a godly, in a godly debate. What's context switching, you ask? Well, stay tuned. Huh. There you go. Until then, let's grab some encouragement, and then I'll close. Go to Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1. Stand firm, my friends. Act like men. <coughs> And don't take that out of context for the transgenders, you women. Don't act like men, you know what I mean? Figurative. Galatians 6, 1. 
Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Uh, put a nice check mark next to that one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kind of. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, <coughs> excuse me, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, that's right now, my friends, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Amen? All right, let's show the video, guys.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this opportunity to gather together as family. Thank you for that knowledge, knowing that every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Let us never be ashamed of him or his gospel, but rather stand out as beacons of light in a world that seems to increase in its acceleration away from you. What a privilege this is, Father. We ask for continued perseverance and tenacity and spreading love and grace and mercy. We ask these things as well as traveling mercies as we take them out to a lost and dying world. It needs them so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.